Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. You're listening to part two of my chat with former Metropolitan Police Detective Inspector Steve Keogh. If you haven't listened to episode one, I highly recommend you pausing this episode and listening to that one first. So, so you know, like you said uh, before, you know, your years and years of preparation for your investigative roles and ultimately, you know, your leadership of, you know, suddenly going through the ranks from detective sergeant to, de- to detective inspector, not only investigating but leading teams of officers and, and I assume taking on the responsibility of the senior investigating officer, the SIO, for a number of homicide cases across London. You've you've written an incredible, fascinating book about, you know, the detail and, and, and the and the processes almost and the thoughts of homicide detectives as to kind of what is important now. One of the um one of the most um remembered or I suppose one of the high profile homicide investigations you'd covered was um Sian uh, Blake. Uh, in 2015, who not only was murdered, but also her two children were by somebody known to her. On screen in EastEnders, she was Frankie Pierre, in the soap for two years in the 90s. 
The chilling real-life drama began when her family reported her missing from their home in Kent before Christmas. A homicide investigation at any particular time is, is distressing, it's confronting, but when there's children involved, sometimes it can almost be a little bit personal because by that age you've got children yourself and, and you know you, could, you kind of understand what must have been going through in her mind in terms of you know a parent's job is to protect her children um, especially a mum and uh, so I'm just keen to understand that particular investigation your thoughts and feelings throughout it really yeah so but you, you make a good point about the children so where I've got this resilience that that's been built up that allowed me to do my job professionally the one thing that I could never get used to was dead children um, so going to the post-mortems of, of adults was one thing. Going to a post-mortem of a child was, is something else completely. And weirdly, I find that comforting um, because where I, where I was talking about um, reflecting on ha how am I now, have I lost all my humanity, if you like, but by not being affected by the things I did. The fact that I, could, I was affected by the children was, was a, a comfort to me in that actually there's still, still some part of me I've not lost. Because if 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 I could if I was not affected in any way, shape, or form by seeing dead children, then I think maybe there was something that I might I might need counselling for. Um, so this 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 was and and it, it does become personal when when you um, every murder you you investigate you give your all, um, but there definitely are some cases you you look back on that were more personal, and this was certainly one of them. Um, and it, it was a hard case in for different reasons as well. So. Um, Simon was reported as missing um, just before Christmas, and it was it was a couple of weeks later she came. The the, the missing person report um, was raised to high, and it came to us as a murder investigation team. So this was on a Saturday, and by the Monday we'd found the the Simon and the two boys in in the garden. I'm here to update you on our continued investigation to the whereabouts of Sian Blake, her two children, and that of her partner Arthur. Simpson Kent. It's with deep regret that I have to inform you that around lunchtime today we found three bodies in the garden of that property. This is now officially, sadly, a murder investigation. Uh, it was a husband um, who had, um, had committed the murder and he he'd had it on his toes and very quickly um, we identified that he'd got on a plane, um, he'd got on a bus to Glasgow, Glasgow to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Ghana. Which we, we knew we'd, we'd found this very, very quickly. Um, was that kind of but, planned to cover his tracks, do you think, that route? Because I, I, I suppose I assumed you'd go to London Heathrow and straight out. It's a weird one, isn't it? But he, he, did, he did book the flight in his own name, but he did use a friend's credit card to book it. Um, now, when we, when we eventually got him back and we did put some questions, we couldn't interview him because the CPS had already authorised a charge. But, but we did make the decision of just giving him the opportunity to say whatever he wanted and he chose not to. So we never really got an insight as to why he did what he did and, and the afterwards. But the fact he went so far out of his way and he booked it, he got a friend to book it, you would assume he's doing that to try and cover his tracks. By then, their killer had already fled to Ghana but was identified, extradited and when he landed back in Britain, he was arrested. Does that frustrate if they're given the opportunity... So you say the CPS had already authorised charging, so no interview, but you give an opportunity. Is there, is there a frustration there that you can't get the answers as to why on earth you committed such a horrendous act? They never do. They never do, Ollie. Um, I, I, I was involved in over 100 murder investigations in some way, shape or form, um, and I, I can't, I'm not aware of one 
where the person sat down and said, yeah, I killed him and this is why. Wow. You might, they might sit down and say, I killed him, but it was self-defense. But they will never sit down and, say, and openly say, I'm sure it happens, but just not in my investigations. So you kind of get used to it. Um, I was always quite pragmatic, pragmatic about it. It's like, it's my job to prove it, not your job to, to confess to it. So mm. that's that's yeah. the way we used to do it. Um, but on this case, what 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 had happened, what, what made it difficult was there was one particular newspaper, it was a Daily Mail, decided that they, that they had created their own narrative around the investigation and they were calling it a bungled murder investigation. What There, there was some issues potentially around why it took so long for, for her to be for it to come to the murder team. But by the time we got it, within a couple of days, we'd, we'd found found um, Simon and the boys. We knew where he was, et cetera. So it wasn't bungled in any way, shape or form. But that's what they decided to run with. And that was really quite difficult, seeing it was a most high-profile case at that time. And people were saying that you're doing your job badly, um, especially like your friends and family and know you're investigating. And you, your personal pride gets hurt by mm. front page headlines that, that we're, we're idiots we don't know what we're doing even to the point where um where where where, where um the suspect was um uh, arrested it was my job it was actually my job to get him arrested so i went to the court and got all of the extradition papers and then liaised with the um uh the, the nca national crime agency out there um and that was, that was challenging because uh Getting the the police in Gagana to do what you want to do, so so it's, because it was so high profile, it did actually made it made my job a bit easier. So uh, what I was getting, I was getting phone calls from people in Ghana, uh, expats that had seen him out and about. So we had a good idea where he was, and th- there's but there's a big difference between knowing where he is and getting the Ghanaian police to get there. So that was challenging. Eventually, yeah. I, I, it took about a day to g them up, and they went down there and they got him arrested. So um, uh, uh, it was my DCI at the time, and one of the DCs went out to um, for the for extradition just to make sure everything went smoothly. And I think they got there on the sometime they got there on the Tuesday, and by the Friday, by the Thursday, all the extradition was done. He, he eventually um, um, Simpson Kent after Simpson Kent, he decided that he wasn't going to challenge it. So he he, he it, it was all it was the paperwork went through really really quickly. And they were flying out on a Friday afternoon, and they were in. So they had Friday morning in the hotel, and they decided to have a swim, and one of them had a beer, and the pictures of them in the pool and drinking beer oh. made it onto the front page of the Daily Mail. Look, these bungling cops! Not only they're bungling, they're having a little holiday. On it's like it was really frustrating. It was so unnecessary, and it definitely made our job. And what well, the worst thing was is that our relationship with the family. So we're yeah. saying, oh, we've. We, we we know what we're doing. We're doing we're doing a good job. We've got it all under control. And then on the flip side, you've got them seeing these headlines that we don't know which one is it. Are you are you doing it? Are you doing it all right, or are you a bunch of idiots? So that was hard. That was definitely hard. There was a little bit of criticism at the end of the investigation, not for your part, but I think the initial missing persons report and how seriously that was treated. I think the, the Met self-reported. I think there was some yeah. Some, 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 definitely some pointers given regards to that in terms of prioritising missing persons. But there must be, there must be, you know, you go through that whole investigative process. The court process must be one which is quite stressful. I would imagine a lot of anxiety around 
have we done everything right? Have we got all our, you know, has our evidence been collated appropriately? Because sometimes you can have all your facts in the right order, but sometimes there could be a, a technicality which causes somebody for something to be challenged by a very cluey Queen's Council representing defence, which then can collapse a matter. Obviously, that one ended you know very positively for the family in terms of closure but i assume that those are some of the emotions you go through as a as a detective who spent a lot of time investigating particular matters yeah definitely 100 percent. so um it, it, once I, I when i first started investigating murder i've never done it before and i very very quickly learned that you have to do things properly and, and the reason is as you said you've got the best best lawyers in the world or mm. certainly what some of the best in the world looking at your case and mm. if there is a if there is a problem they will find it if you haven't if you haven't followed through a procedure correctly they will pick up on it so it really makes you up your game and it makes you do your job properly which which i, I enjoyed it was it, again it was a challenge so it was like we we're we are going to get this conviction and we're going to do our job properly and we're going to make sure that we cross all the t's dot all the i's investigating murders when you the, what you see on telly to, to, to reality is quite stark it's not fun. It's not exciting. It's about being meticulous. It's about doing everything properly, and and it is for that reason because everything you do is is with court in mind. So from the very first time you get the phone call that there's been a murder, you're thinking about court, and if you don't, that's where problems come in. You always every every decision you make, every every action you take, you're doing it with a view to how's this going to look when we're at court, and by taking that stance, you you give yourself a much better chance of getting a conviction there. And when you get to court, like, it's not always the case, but some of the defence teams use tactics that I was never happy with. Like they they would do anything they could to to get their client off, whether or not it was morally or or ethically right. But so once you've been through all that, you've been through the investigation, you've been there with the family, you've been through the trial, and the trials can get quite nasty. What that meant is by the by the end, when you do that get that conviction, it makes it all the sweeter. And that feeling of being in court when the when the um, jury walk in and they give their verdict of guilty, you can't beat that. I mean, it's just such. Once that happened, and that's why when I, when I joined the murder team on, what did I have about eighteen years service, and I, and I never left. I did my last twelve there, and it was because of that, because of that feeling. I think I could never have replicated that doing anything else. One of your periods of your service was Operation Trident in the Gang Command, and it's been something that's been quite. Um front of mind for a lot of people in and around London because of the increase in gang violence. That's a period of your career which I assume you not only got a lot out of but made a huge difference in in terms of the policing of that particular issue because it's something which by today's standards is is really bad. I don't know if you'd agree with that statement that things have slightly got worse. I know certainly assaults and stabbings are, are down currently in London which is a very positive thing to see but it's it's often just boiling away in the background as this kind of tension between postcodes. Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, it's. It's probably the same in any major city in the world, but um, London definitely has a pro- has a gang problem, and it, and it all stems from drugs. And it's there's a lot of money to be made in drugs, and where there's a lot of money, comes a lot of violence because people want their share of that money, and they will do what they do what they 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 need to do to get it. So, yeah, it, it, I, I I if I'm honest, I didn't enjoy my time on Trident as much. Because, and, and the reason was is I was a DI and I, and I was only there for a few months and I was, I was desperately trying to get back to murder. And the reason being, as a DI on a murder team, you're you're really, really contributing to a murder investigation. Whereas a DI on Trident, I found myself as more of a manager of people 
And mm. I joined the job to be a police officer, not manager of people. And that's why I didn't go higher in ranks um, because I wanted to do the job. And I found Trident a bit more frustrating. So we use a, a computer system where we record crimes. And I was like a second line supervisor on that. And as I'm contributing, but I didn't feel I was contributing as much. So that's mm. why I was desperate to get back to the murder scenes. And I did it. I was only there for a few months and everybody knew I wanted to get back. Um, so I could do that. I could feel more hands-on and have a real impact on the crimes that were being committed. One of the, I think, the, the, the biggest issues in terms of policing is when someone like you finishes up their services and walks out the door with all those years of experience, um, you know, 30-plus years, you know, 18, what's it, 12 of those as a, as a homicide murder detective. Now, you've written this fascinating book, Murder Investigation Team, How Killers Are Caught, Um how can people learn from this book? What what what's what's the objective of this material that you've put out? Because it's an incredible read, even for someone like me who spent just over twelve years in law enforcement. It's a, an incredible read as to the mindset of homicide investigations and, and what is important now. But what was your objective when you set out to write such a fascinating read? Yeah, I appreciate your, your feedback, Ellie. Thank you. That, that means a lot. Um, so when when I left the police, I've set up a company, and the and the idea is just very briefly that. There are skills that, that detectives have um, and skills that are used in murder investigations that I believe are transferable to business. So the idea is they go into businesses and train their staff on decision-making, problem-solving, et cetera. Um, so what I wanted to do is when I come out of the police, not just be an ex-police officer, I wanted to make myself stand out a little bit. So I, was, I decided I was going to write a book and the book was going to be, these are the skills in murder investigations, this is how I can benefit murder. But what I realized when I started writing or started doing the research is that no one had actually ever written a book around how murders are investigated. They've written about particular cases and you can learn how that case was solved. But no one, has, I mean, there is a book actually, it's called the, it's the Blackstone's um, Senior Investigating Officer's Handbook, which is <laughs> not accessible. I've got a copy and it's, it's it's got some brilliant stuff in there. But most people won't be able to pick it up and read it and get any kind of enjoyment out of it. So I wanted to write a book that, that somebody could come along. And it, like, so it could be a police officer. It could be um, someone who's into true crime, someone, a journalist. I've had all, all sorts of different people have, have read it, people within, mm. within the judiciary in some other shape or form. So they get an understanding of what, not, not the, not the, what you see on the telly what you see in films about how Mo is investigated because that's that's fiction that's entertainment but what actually goes on in the background when when you see that there's a crime has been committed when a murder has happened what I, the idea is that by the time someone's finished reading the book they switch on the news and, and there's been a murder they will know exactly what's going on in the background that's 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 my motivation for it um and I've a few police officers that have read it and said they've found it helpful as well because um, what I'm talking about is the processes of an investigation and the mindset. I don't. I also relate it to cases I've dealt with, so it's not just a manual. It's also got a bit of bit of life to it. Um, but yeah, that's so that's that's the idea. Whoever picks it up will be able to get in the mind of a, a murder investigator, and that, that book doesn't exist. That that's why I wrote it. Uh, it's a, a fascinating story and quite incredible to read and to understand kind of the mindset as i've said as 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 to investigations your exit from the police um obviously quite recent in november last year 
what was that feeling like when you hand back your warrant card and you you know you're no longer accountable to that on-call mobile phone you're no longer investigating homicides sometimes often that transition from policing to the private sector is often sometimes it's not easy for everybody some people make the transition quite easily some people get a little bit lost as to kind of what's my identity and and, and often I think one of the greatest things we miss is the people around us because that is what the job is made of, those people that we work alongside. But I'm just intrigued as to exploring those those thoughts and feelings on your last day and, and walking away from a career that you've done so tremendously at. Yeah, so I, all, all those years ago, 1991, when I joined, I signed, a, I signed a piece, or maybe I didn't. In my mind, I signed a piece of paper to say that I was going to do 30 years. Maybe I did or didn't. Anyway, in my mind, that's what I did. <laughs> and I, I, I was mentally not winding down but I was mentally prepared from from the day I joined for 2021 um so at some point I would have been oh I would have got to 15 years and I'd have been in my mind I've got less left than I did and I, I I was mentally by the end I think what it meant was by the end of my 30 years I was I was ready to go I was I'd, I'd done my bit and I, I I felt like I'd given it my all and when you're investigating murders and terrorism and that kind of thing it takes over your life and um so my, i've got two children i've got four i've got a two from a previous relationship and then two from a second one and the first one was at a time when i was i was sort of on the antitrust branch and and etc and there were times where i didn't see my children um and i didn't see my friends and i had to cancel events and I, it took over my life and by the end when as when i where i've got two young children now I, I I don't want to do that again. I want I want to be there for them. I want to be the full time dad, not the dad that they see when the when the job allows it. So I was ready to go. I think I, I think I'd, I'd give my all. And if someone had said to me, um, like I, I I ran a marathon a few a few years back uh, before a kid, and I could actually spend some time running. Um, and I found the hardest part was the point two. So you run twenty six point two miles, and I was mentally prepared for twenty six. Completely forgot about <laughs> the point two, and I found the point two was the hardest bit. So if someone had said to me that at the end of my thirty years, and I know this has happened to some colleagues, and I feel I feel really bad for them. Actually, no, you have got to do this extra bit. I think that extra bit may have broke me because I've mentally I was ready. I was ready by thirty to go, and I think what helped as well was having the book and having the business and having other focus having other things I could put my energies into um meant that I've, I've actually and, and I, I didn't think I'd be able I didn't think I'd say this but I, I haven't missed it um because I'm really excited about what's coming next and what I'm doing now um so yeah that, that's how I feel at the moment well it's you know the uh, as I said the underlining theme of the podcast is um, ordinary people doing extraordinary work but as cliche as it sounds you know Edmund Burke once said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing and and you really are the optimum of, of that saying in terms of you've taken on all these evil individuals you've held them accountable some of them are serving lengthy charges so lengthy sentences for the charges that you've you've pursued against them so I think on behalf of my listeners, thank you for your service. Thank you for sharing and opening up to us over the last hour of these fascinating stories and your your life in policing. It's been quite an incredible journey. And uh, we wish you, on behalf of my colleagues, the podcast, and I wish you all the very best for the future and what lies ahead in post-policing. That's very kind, Ollie. I really appreciate that. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence... Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. 
Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.